Well, I'm thankful to be in Christ. I'm thankful to be in Christ and be here with those of you who are in Christ as we worship, as we open God's Word, as we let its truth sink in to our hearts. I invite you this morning to turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, as we've been in a series on this book, and we've we've looked at the first uh, paragraph, the main paragraph, really, in the chapter 1, the longest one, previously, verse 3 through 14, one of the longest paragraphs in the New Testament. And we come now to another long paragraph. Paul likes to just go on about God and go on about the Lord and what he's done for us. And, and in this case, he's asking certain things of God for the Ephesian believers. And there's a real important lesson here for us to learn. I think if we take, especially these first three verses in today, this could change each one of us to grow deeper with the Lord. And it could, it could change our church even as we continue to grow in Christ, as we continue to be sanctified in Him. So today we're looking at just 15 through 17 of chapter 1, that first part of that paragraph. Uh, I've entitled the sermon, Prayer for a Deeper Knowledge of God. I want to read the whole paragraph to you. I always want to help you see the context of the passage. But we'll be, just be looking at the first few verses today. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Let the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Should Christians be growing in their maturity? Should they be growing in Christ? That's really the topic that Paul's addressing from the very beginning of his prayer here. Should we be learning more and more about God? Or should we just be thankful that we're justified, be thankful that Christ has died for us, and sort of sit back and wait for Him to return, or for us to die and go to be with Him? I think most Christians would say it's right, it's good to grow as a Christian, but you see that not practiced very well in the modern church, in modern Christianity. I don't think that's the message that you would hear throughout much of Christianity. In fact, a message we often hear is certain churches are too doctrinal. Sermons and Bible studies are too long, so they have to be cut shorter. There's too much Bible being taught. There's too much singing about God's truth. There's too many prayers. And there's a lessening of Scripture. It's a sad state uh, where we're at in the modern church. And we want to try to not do that. We want to seek God's word and follow it. God's word teaches us we should be growing. We should be maturing. Christians are really frustrated. They want to grow. They want to please the Lord. But they've never been taught. 
They're truly saved. They're truly converted. They have a new heart. But where do they go? What do they do? What do they learn first? And, and what does it even mean when they read the Bible? And how do they live it out? And how do they practice it? They haven't been taught anything by their church, by their books that are sold in most Christian bookstores. They're light. They're fluffy, those books are. They're not teaching the great doctrines of the faith. Paul's speaking to believers only a few years old, and look what he's been talking about. Heavy things, deep doctrines. He doesn't start off with the ABCs and then work up gradually. He starts off with some of the weightiest doctrines. Election, predestination, sealing of the Spirit, redemption by grace alone, God's will, all these things we've already read about. And now he just straight up says, I pray that you would know God better, that he would give you a spirit so that you could know him better. That's the point of this whole paragraph, really. And he makes that explicit in 15 through 17. The point is, as a believer in Christ, you already have everything you need. That was 3 through 14. You already have everything you need. Now you're supposed to grow. You have all the parts that you need to live the Christian life. You've been given every spiritual blessing. Do you see that in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You already have it. And he goes through what those things are. The big ones anyway. There are many more he'll open up in the letter. And now you need to live it out. He'll really open that up in chapters 3 through 6, but he's already praying right here that that would happen. All you need to do is grow up, mature. We all need to grow up in the faith, mature in the faith, no matter where you're at. No matter if you've been a Christian 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, there's still growth. There's still growth to be had in the Christian life, and God expects that. God wants that for us. It's good for us to mature. It's not good for a child to stay immature as they grow into an adult. We want our children to mature in both mental abilities and physical abilities. And God, our Father, wants us to mature in the faith. So Paul prays for that. And I've divided the passage up into two main ideas. Two main ideas. He really gets into growing in 16 and 17. But, but first of all, in 15, he just starts off giving thanks. Prayers to God, any prayer to God, especially if you want to know him more, should have thanks for new heart desires. So that's number one point, giving thanks for new heart desires. Each of us ought to be doing that in our prayers. We just read John 3. I mean, again, a providential scripture reading to, to match the sermon. I didn't design it that way. We're just reading through John. Jesus is talking about being born again. He's talking about having a new heart. And here's Paul thanking God that the Ephesian believers have been given a new heart. And not so much does he say it, a new heart in that language, but he says in their desires. And what he's heard about them is it's wonderful. It's fabulous. And he's praising God. He's giving thanks to God for it. And if you take out much of verse 15, you can see the general idea. For this reason, I too, then jump down to 16, do not cease giving thanks for you. Paul himself is giving thanks to God for them. For them. We ought to be doing that. We ought to be giving thanks to God for what he's done in us and other believers in the church. So he starts off by saying, for this reason. What reason? The reason he's already gave. 3 through 14. All that God's done for us in salvation. He's already saved them. Paul's not asking that God save them all over again. He, he's already justified them in Christ. When, they, when they're believers, they are justified. They're being sanctified. 
But what did he do for them? He elected them. The Father elected them. Because of this, Paul's going to pray. Because the Son redeemed them. Because the Spirit sealed them. For this reason, all of that together, the Trinitarian God of Scripture has saved us, Paul said, and I'm going to now pray for you. And I'm going to give thanks, first of all. So he says, I too. He, he brings it into the first person. I, Paul, the apostle. He's bringing himself into it, emphasizing that he is an apostle. He has authority. And really, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. This would mean something to these Ephesians. Paul went there and lived for three years. He taught them scripture, taught them theology, how to live the Christian life. He preached on the streets. He went into the synagogues. And he says, I, as, the, as an apostle of Christ, as a messenger of Christ, I'm praying for you, he says. He's a spiritual leader, really over all the churches that he planted. We don't have apostles today. But back then, they were leading all the churches that they planted and appointing elders there, yes, but still visiting those churches, writing to those churches. And Paul's sitting in prison. Remember, he's in Rome. He's chained to a prison guard. He's able to receive visitors. He's able to receive letters. He's able to hear about the churches that he's planted. He's receiving reports. And even though it's been many years, it could be as, as little as three, as much as seven years, some say, since Paul's been in Ephesus, he's still keeping up with them. He's still receiving reports. He's still praying for them. And so he's heard a heartwarming news about the church there. And that prompts him to pray. And look what he's heard. This is what he's giving thanks for, what he's heard. Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. They'd been pagans. These people had been pagans, and they were worshiping Artemis the false goddess in Ephesus, the goddess of Asia Minor, the one that tourists came just to see her statue, to worship her, to see the temple, the great temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. They practiced magic. They wanted to do the magical things that Artemis would let them do. And he says, I thank God, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. They turned from their idols. He continues to hear about new believers there having faith. And he continues that the whole church is having ongoing faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be saved. Not only that you would get eternal life, but that you have faith as, in Christ as your Savior. You're trusting in Him. And he says, I give thanks to God. Why would he give thanks to God for their faith? It's their faith. Didn't they exercise it? Well, Paul realizes where faith actually comes from. It's got to be granted by God. It's a new heart desire. I give thanks to God. Why? Because you have faith. Why? Because God granted it is the implication. God opened their hearts. God opened their hearts to believe like he did Lydia at the river in Acts 16. You see, the gospel is about trusting in someone. You see, in the Lord Jesus. It's not about trusting in something. I trust that I'll have eternal life. I trust in my faith. I trust in myself. I trust in the church. I trust in the Pope. I trust in Mary. No, it's about trusting in Christ. Not an idea, but a person. A person. Fully God, fully man. And you have to have faith in Him. You have to put your, your trust in Him. You can't talk about just faith. It's faith in something. Faith in someone. 
Christ, the Savior, the Lord. He is our Lord. And this faith is, is not something they did years ago. He doesn't say, I heard of your faith years ago. I heard of your commitment years ago. I heard of your profession years ago. It exists among you. Right now, he says, at the time he writes, this isn't initial faith so much as just active, living faith that continues. He hasn't heard of people leaving the faith. He hasn't heard of the church falling apart. It's an existing faith in Christ. It continues in each of them. A faith that is so certain and so strong that it's traveled, the news of it has traveled hundreds of miles to reach Paul. That's the kind of faith that I want to have. That's the faith that you should want to have. That others are hearing about it. You don't have to tell them because they can hear about it. They can see it in your life. And secondly, he's heard something else that goes along with this. He says he's heard of your love for all the saints. These are two things that mark a true Christian. Love for Christ and love for others. Especially those within your own local body. That's where love for others is seen. Love for the brethren. Jesus taught this clearly. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How do people know we're your disciples? If you have love for one another. John 13, 35. How how do we know if we're Christians even? Love for one another. 1 John talks about this in his letter. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Why is he a liar? Because he doesn't really love God if he hates his brother. If he has an ongoing hatred for other brothers in Christ, he doesn't love God. For the one who does not love his brother, John says, whom he has seen, he sees his brother. His brother's there all the time in the church when they gather. How, how, if you don't love the brother that you have seen, you cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that's from Jesus, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Two huge marks of a Christian. The faith in Christ, trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord, and loving the brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving the brethren. This is a true love that's shown to others. If you love Jesus, you'll love those who are His. This idea that I love Jesus but don't love the church, it's not Christian, it's not biblical. I think it's a way of people getting out of going to church or maybe waking up on Sunday. If you love Christ, you love his people. Doesn't mean they're all perfect. Doesn't mean they're the most exciting people you're going to be around. Some of them are hurting. Some of them are suffering. Sometimes you're going to feel their sadness. You're going to weep with those who weep. It's not about your emotions, though. It's about love. Love isn't just an emotion, by the way. Yeah, there's an emotional component, but love is an action. It's an emotion and an action. It's a sacrificial action. Agape love. Agape has the idea of sacrificial love. That you're giving of yourself to love others. You're you're serving them. You're helping them. You're praying with them. You're teaching them. All the things that you want to do as a Christian. It's sacrificial. The word love is used a lot in Christianity, sometimes wrongly. I like what S. Lewis Johnson, he was an older theologian, he taught it. Trinity Seminary and Dallas Theological Seminary. He was a solid reform guy. And he said, I'm tired of hearing about sloppy agape. This idea of love in Christianity that's not, it's not accurately portrayed. He said, sloppy agape is the kind of sentimentality that's so often taken for love. It's the kind of love in which people can say, God's interested in love, 
But he's not interested in doctrine and theology. It's not what Paul says. It's not what the Bible says. God, God loves all of his truth in all of his people. And we ought to be the same. We ought to love God and his truth and his people. And not say love as a sloppy kind of definition. It's being nice. Just being nice is love. Is, is that the kind of love that sent Jesus to the cross? Was he just being nice? Or did he have a specific love, a sacrificial love? The kind of love that we ought to show for others. The kind of love that Paul's going to pick up in Ephesians 5 that a husband should show to his wife. Just like Christ died for her, the church, we ought to sacrificially love our wives. That's the kind of love we ought to have for one another. And Paul thanks God for those two things in their life. They have faith in Christ. They have love for the other brothers and sisters there in the church and, and really all Christians. But it's shown again in the local church. That's why church is so important. That's why church is important. Why do I have to go to church? Well, there are many reasons God has given us the command to be part of a church. One, uh, we saw when we read the new members covenant. We will not forsake the assembling of one another together. And here's another one. To love your brethren. How does that happen if you're by yourself at home? But Paul gives thanks for this. He's not hearing that they've left, that they're staying at home, that they're too scared to go to church. They might be found out. They might get convicted of their sin. No, he's happy to hear what he's hearing. Ongoing faith in Christ. Love for one another. But they're not works that these believers have done. Because remember, he's giving thanks to God for it. He doesn't say, I give thanks to you believers for your faith and your love. I give thanks to God that you even have it to begin with. We have faith because the Lord has given that to us. We love others, John says, because he first loved us. And Paul goes on in the beginning of 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you. Because I've heard these things, I have been praying for you and praying for you and praying for you since I first heard about it. He's in prison. He gets reports over those two years that he's there, roughly, and and he's hearing about these churches, and he hears about Ephesus, and he's just been praying for them every day. He probably has set times of prayer throughout the day, and he's just saying, I'm always praying for you, all throughout the day in my prayer time. And I continue to give thanks. I continue to give thanks to God. I'm always giving thanks to him for what I'm hearing there. I would pray that our church would, would have that kind of news go out, that the Kerbal Bible could hear the good news of our church having faith in Christ and our church loving one another and that other churches in our area could hear that. That we might be an example even as a church of this very doctrine. Well, now that Paul's given thanks for their new heart desires because God's given them a new heart and, and that's allowed them to have faith, it's allowed them to love one another. He's now going to petition God for spiritual illumination. And we should be petitioning God, number two, for spiritual illumination. We, we need to be asking God for this. Spiritual illumination is just light. The word illumination means light. Spiritual light from God so that we can grow in Him. And Paul prays that they will have this. Look at the rest of verse 16. So he, he's not ceasing giving thanks while making mention of you in my prayer. So while he's praying all of his prayers for them, one of the major ones is giving thanks. But he's also going to describe what specifically he's praying that God would give them. So he gives thanks, and then he petitioned. A petition is asking God for something. 
Your prayer should not be all about asking God for things. You should be giving thanks. You should be praising and adoring Him. You should be confessing in your prayers. But Paul's telling them what he's been praying about, what he wants them to have. That, verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's asking that God give them something. Who is this God? It's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God, the Father, the Father of Jesus. And he's indicated that he's, he's praying to this Almighty God through the Son when he says the Father of our Lord Jesus. Paul's already determined and told us that he's an apostle. He's, he's made that clear in verse 1. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. How do we get to God? How does God answer our prayers? Why does God even hear us? Not because of us. Because he's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have a relationship with Christ? God's hearing your prayers. He's answering your prayers. If they're in the Lord's will, of course. Paul's praying that God would give them something. Who is this God? He's the God of our Lord. Our Lord Jesus. Jesus being his human name. Yeshua, Joshua. Means God saves. And then Christ being his title. Messiah. Christ is the same thing as Messiah. This is his father. The one that Jesus said hears him. Well, he also hears us. And Paul just goes on. He says, the father of glory. In verse 17, the father of glory. The glorious father is the idea there. You remember in the previous paragraph, Paul kept saying all this is to praise God for his glory. Three times he said, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of God's glory. We're saved to the praise of God's glory. Everything God's done for us is to praise him for his glory. What's his glory? Well, it's, it's his splendor. It's his majesty. It's, it's seen or described anyway in the Bible when others see a bright shining light. Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus being transfigured. That's the, the display of it when we can see it. But his glory just really sums up everything that he is, all of his attributes. This is the Father of glory, the glorious Father. God's been revealed in this previous section here as the one where he shows his glory in election, predestination, redemption, and sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's the God that we're praying to, by the way. Paul prays to that God. We pray to that God as Christians. It's not just some pagan God. It's not just some general American God. It's not just some creator of the world. He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the father of glory. He's the only true God. This is a God who can answer your prayers. He will answer your prayers. He wants to answer your prayers. How wonderful our God is. A glorious father. Paul says that he, he prays. He, he's praying that the father may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now he's really getting into the meat of his prayer. What is he asking for here? And really the question becomes, first of all, who is this spirit? If you're reading the NASB, the spirit is lowercase. If you're reading the ESV, maybe other translation, it's, it's uppercase S for spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Is this the, the lowercase spirit, the idea of a, of a human disposition? Sometimes you see that use for spirit in the Bible. A spirit of gentleness, a spirit of timidity, a spirit of bondage. 
Paul uses that language sometimes. And so the NASB considers this a a human disposition, that, that God would grant to believers an ability in us for wisdom and revelation. We often use the word spirit like this when we say, she's in high spirits. Just describing a general quality about the person, a disposition. And many would argue this is the right way to do it. There's no article, there's no the in the original Greek here, so it's not as if it's the spirit. And so some would say it's just a general idea of the human spirit being granted these blessings if you're in Christ. And others would say also, look, the Holy Spirit's already been given back in 13 and 14. Why does he talk about the Spirit being given again? That's the arguments for a human spirit. I don't agree with those. I think it's the Holy Spirit. Most Bible scholars think it's the Holy Spirit. Most translations think it is the Holy Spirit here. Now, I'll give you some reasons why. Because Paul says it's the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, we can have wisdom as humans, and God can grant us wisdom. But we can't have revelation. Maybe the original prophets in the church got direct revelation from God. But he's not praying here. Paul's not saying, may you humans have this general disposition where you can get more revelation from God. It doesn't work theologically. And there's eight other places in the Bible where the Holy Spirit doesn't have this article, the Spirit, in Greek. So Paul can just say Spirit. And by context, I'm showing you how we come about this interpretation. By context, we can see it's the Holy Spirit. Revelation can't come from ourselves, but it can come from the Holy Spirit. Can the Holy Spirit give you revelation? He did, the prophets, and today he can point to the scriptures and reveal things to us. He can open your eyes and open your heart to new truths in the scriptures. So that's where we're going with this idea of the Holy Spirit here. Isaiah 11, 2 describes the Holy Spirit. And, and some say that Paul's thinking of Isaiah 11 when he uses this. Isaiah 11, 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Messiah. What kind of spirit is he? He's a spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So if you wanted to draw in your Bibles, you could change that to a capital S. That's the way it should be interpreted, I think. Paul later talks about this idea of the Spirit giving us wisdom and understanding. Go to chapter 3 in Ephesians. Chapter 3, 4, and 5. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight. That's the idea of wisdom. My, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. How did God reveal the mystery? It was in the Spirit. You have to be in the Holy Spirit to have this revealed to you through the Spirit. Go to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And he goes on to talk about how we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Spirit fills us as believers. Yeah, he does. He continually fills us as we live a godly life. That's what Paul's pointing to. You might ask, don't we already have the Spirit though? Don't we already have the Holy Spirit as believers? Yes. He gives every new believer the Holy Spirit. From the moment you're saved. You don't wait to get the Spirit. 
So why is he praying that we've been that we be given the Spirit? Why is he telling the Ephesians, I pray that you would be given the Holy Spirit? Well, the, the work of the Spirit is not a one-time event. The Spirit does a lot of things right at the beginning. He regenerates you. He seals you. He does many things for the new believer. But he's in you. He's with you. He's always there. And one of the ongoing works of the Spirit is to sanctify us, to grow us, to illuminate the Scriptures for us. So when Paul says, I pray, I pray that you may be given the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's praying for them that God would give them more of the Spirit's power. Not to do miracles, but to understand God. To know God. That's what he's getting to here. Because you can't know God unless God reveals it. God's given us his word, but unbelievers read the word, don't they? They can read those words, but you need the Spirit to really understand them. You need the Spirit to have things revealed to you as you're reading and studying Scripture. We need to know God better than we do. That's the point he's making. We need to know God. And I pray that all of you, he says, know God better. You have a deeper knowledge of God. That's part of the Holy Spirit's ministry. The famous Christian author, A.W. Tozer, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's the most important thing about you, he says, as a Christian. Who is God? Who is God? A lot of people say they're saved, but they have no clue who God is and who Christ is. You have to know who that is. Not everything. You can't exhaust the knowledge of God. You never will. Even if you memorize the Bible, had the most perfect theology. But you can grow. And you have to know, even at the beginning, that God is holy. That Jesus is God. That's part of the gospel. And then throughout your Christian life, you're growing and growing and learning. And so Paul's praying that they would grow. And how are they going to do that? They have to have the Holy Spirit given to them, filling them filling them as they're living a godly life as they're fighting sin as they're following christ's example the spirit will fill them more and that will lead to good works and that will lead to more knowledge of god but the more they sin and the more they follow that path the less the spirit will fill them the less god will give his spirit in that way the less you'll understand and the less you'll know until god brings you back and disciplines you to get you back to him. So I think it's the Holy Spirit here. That's the reason that he gives it. But let's look at what he's asking for. And do you see in the passage, what kind of spiritual benefit is he asking for from God as he prays? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. <coughs> wisdom. And the knowledge of God. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the idea of skill. To have wisdom in ancient Greece meant to have skill in the arts, in your craft, your skill. And in the Bible, it means that you're skilled in living the Christian life. You're skilled in taking God's word and living it out. This is application. Not just memorizing bare facts. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing what's true and then living it out and practicing it and using it. 
to act and live wisely as Christians in the world. The Holy Spirit, it, he doesn't just show us the truth, but, but he, he's given to us so we would have wisdom, the ability to apply that truth and practice it in our lives. Not just the bare facts. You, you can know who God is a little bit. You can know about Jesus a little bit. I did that as a little kid. I believed in God. He was real. I believed in Christ. But I wasn't saved. I didn't trust in him. I didn't submit to him. But I accepted the facts. A lot of people today say, I believe in God. I have a knowledge of him. What are you talking about? I believe in God. Which God? Who is that God? Knowing the bare facts is not truly knowing God. Knowing God's having an intimate, personal relationship with him. You know, the, the people that James was writing to, they thought they, their faith was so great. I have faith, they said. I have faith. And James says, you know what? Show me your good works. Show me your good works. And they go on, oh, we have faith. We know who God is. We have faith in God. You know what he says? You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe that and shudder. The demons believe that God is real. The demons understand who God is and that he is he's one, one God, three persons, one God. The demons understand theology. That's not enough to save you. You need to have wisdom. You need to be able to live this out, Paul says. I pray that you can learn from Scripture and apply it in your life. You've got to be growing and getting better at applying the Bible to your life and letting yourself be filled with the Spirit. Not in a charismatic, prophetic, speaking in tongues way, but getting out of the way so you can live a godly life. Taking yourself out of the way and following Christ actively. Yourself, your, your flesh, your, your old self that wants to stick around and corrupt your Christian walk. You've got to push that one off, the Bible says. Take off the old self and put on the new self, which is in Christ. Put on Christ. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Go back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at this wisdom given by the Spirit. What does that look like? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. And Paul's going to talk about the wisdom that comes from the Spirit. It's different than the wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. So mature believers, we speak wisdom. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. What's the mystery? The mystery is the gospel. The mystery is how God saves. The mystery is that Christ came to save Jew and Gentile. The mystery is that God came in the form of Christ and started his church, his body. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So he quotes from the Old Testament. And he's showing what this wisdom looks like. Verse 10. For to us God revealed them. He, he revealed these things through the Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So the idea is that the Holy Spirit, that's God's Spirit, of course. 
He searches. He knows the things of God. He is God. God the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? So a man, his spirit knows what he's thinking. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. How do you know the thoughts of God? How do you know what God wants us to think, believe, and do? Well, it has to be shown through the spirit. And Paul goes on in verse 12. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. We have to have wisdom from the Spirit, not man's wisdom. That's why when you have a a preacher in a church get up and just talk about his family and his wisdom and what he would recommend doing, that's man's wisdom. You You want the Bible. You want the Holy Spirit's wisdom taken from Scripture and explained. And Paul's saying, that's what we preach. The gospel, the good news of salvation. And he says, these things, that includes all these things that are in the Bible. These things, these truths of Scripture. God's full wisdom in planning and providing redemption through Christ. Paul's saying, I want you believers, and we ought to pray this too, to have a spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit of wisdom given to you by God regularly. So you can understand who God is. So you can live it out. So you can live it out. So you can practice it. So you can apply it in your life. Memorizing scripture is good. You have to know what it says before you can do it. But you should also be applying it skillfully through the spirit working in you. Secondly, though, he says, not just a spirit of wisdom, but revelation in the knowledge of God. Revelation means to make something fully known. The idea in ancient Greek is, when something was revealed, you pulled the cover off of it. You, you uncovered it. It was hidden before, and now you've uncovered it. And here in, in the Bible, it deals with revealing the truths of Scripture so that we can know who God is. These things were hidden in God, but now they're revealed. How do we know who God is? How do we truly understand God? This morning in our class, we looked at Leviticus. And we saw that the theme of Leviticus was God's holiness. That book teaches about God's holiness. That book teaches how God is a holy God and and how we are to make ourselves right with him. Well, it points us to Christ now, but back then, if you're in Israel, how to make yourself right with God. And so, revelation means an uncovering. This is what Jesus did in Luke 24. You remember the two guys on the road to Emmaus? What did he do? He opened their hearts so they could understand the Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah. And what did they say? Our hearts burned within us when he opened our eyes to the truth. He shined light into darkness. He revealed what was there. They knew their Old Testament. They knew their Bibles. They were were followers of Christ in his lifetime. They knew their Bibles. They still didn't understand what was going on. He opens their heart. They can see. They can understand. Their hearts burn. They have passion. They have zeal for the Lord. We we can't see all that's there without the Spirit. We need light shone onto them. That's what illumination is. Spiritual light. Spiritual illumination by the Holy Spirit. Not mystical spiritual light. Real illumination by the Spirit in our minds, so that we can understand the scripture. They can be revealed to us. We can see grammar as we read. 
We can look up the historical context. Even an unbeliever can do that. Unbelievers write commentaries on the Bible. You know that? Unbelieving liberal scholars write commentaries on the Bible. They can look up the history. They can look at the syntax and the words and the, do word studies. They can't see all the truth that's hidden there. You have to have the Spirit to see that. And that's what Paul's praying for, that you, believers, would have wisdom and revelation. When it comes to scholarly methods of interpreting the Bible, one person said the Holy Spirit may as well be dead. People just don't care about the Holy Spirit in modern liberal circles when they study the Bible. Because they don't have the Spirit. And so it doesn't matter to them. They can't find the truth that is revealed there. The doctrine of illumination by the Spirit. It helps you understand Scripture. John Calvin said it like this. Flesh, that's, that's our human nature, It's not capable of such lofty wisdom as to conceive God and what is God's unless it's illumined, unless it's brought to light by the Spirit of God. Illumination is governed by God's eternal election, he says, and he illumines those whom he predestined to salvation. God's got to show us. You can't just sit back and by osmosis absorb the truth. You got to get into scripture and God will reveal things as the spirit is with you, working through you. It's what the writer of Psalm 119 said. I love Psalm 119. It's it's about scripture. And the, the writer says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law, in your word. Show me something. Open my eyes. Now he's writing scripture. He's writing one of the greatest Psalms. And he's praying that God would open his eyes to see something more. In other words, he realizes that without adding to the word, he's not asking for more revelation so he can write more. He's saying that there's more to know from what you've already given, God. Show us more from what you've given. You know this as a believer. You read through the Bible. Maybe you're reading through the Bible every year. Next year, you come back around to the same passage. Hey, I never noticed that before. I never thought of it this way. Hey, the preacher, the pastor was preaching on this and I've never seen it in that light. That's the Holy Spirit revealing these things in your heart, in your mind. Go forward from Ephesians to Colossians 1.9. I want you to see there how it's an ongoing thing. Illumination is ongoing in the Christian life. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why, Paul? Why do we need this? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. We don't need to know God more. We already know him. We're saved. No, Paul says, you do. And I'm praying that you will do that. That God will open up your eyes. The great Puritan John Owen said, the person who would utterly separate the Holy Spirit from the word should just go and burn his Bible. That's pretty strong language from a guy who wrote a set of books like this on my shelf about the Bible. And he said, if if you don't care about the Holy Spirit and you don't have the Holy Spirit, the Bible is no good to you. The Bible's no good to you. Now, we don't want unbelievers to burn the Bible. He was, he was being hyperbolic to prove a point. Without the Spirit, we can't see all the truth that God wants us to see. 
And so Paul prays that we would have more of the Spirit as we study and believe and live out Scripture. Stephen Charnock's another Puritan. He says, it is impossible to honor God as we ought. In other words, you cannot honor God as you should unless we know him as he is. How do you honor God unless you know the God you're honoring? And, and he goes on, we could not know him as he is without divine revelation from himself. Charnock wrote the book on the attributes of God. And he says, look, you, you can't even know God unless he reveals himself to you. That's why we need the Spirit. That's why the Spirit has to open up truths for us. Now, not everybody is maturing, though, along this path. Paul prays for that. Paul prays for that. He wants that. But some people resist. Some people resist the Spirit. Some people quench the Spirit. Some people grieve the Spirit by living in sin, by not accepting the truth of teaching, by, by not being willing to study the Word, to hear the Word. And Paul addresses this in another book, 1 Corinthians. I gave you milk to drink, he says, when I came to visit you. I gave you milk, not solid food. These were the basics of Christianity that I gave you. And he says, you were not able to receive it. And then here's the big shocker for us. Even now, he says, indeed, even now, you're not able or you are still fleshly. In other words, he's saying the book of 1 Corinthians is milk, a book that we struggle with, a book that we try to really get into and interpret. has some hard teachings in there, some things that scholars are still debating exactly what's being said. That's just milk. Paul wanted to give them the meat, but they couldn't take it. They were resisting it. They were resisting the Spirit by living in sin. Hebrews 5.12. This one's kind of funny. It's, it's a little bit sarcastic. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk, not solid food. Who drinks milk only? Babies. He says, you're babies. He's being a little hard with them, isn't he? He's trying to shake them up. These Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, they want to turn away from the faith. They're scared. They're not accepting all this truth. They're trying to wander around and look for other things. And he says, your baby's in the faith. You've come to need milk, not solid food. I want to move on to some more advanced things, and I've got to come back and give you milk. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant, he's a baby. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. A mature person has studied the scriptures and they've learned from it and they're applying it in their life and they're just doing that every day and they're becoming more and more mature. They can handle the meat. They can handle the meat. Maybe you were like that at one time. Somebody started talking to you about election and predestination and you didn't want to hear about it. That's advanced stuff. But as God grew you, as you matured, you could accept those truths. You could see them now in Scripture. They've been revealed by the Spirit through the Word or somebody showing you the Word. But not everybody automatically has it. Don't sit back and think you're going to be getting the Spirit's illumination. You've got to be applying yourself. Sanctification means that God is working through you. You're working and God is working. And He's the one that has the power and He's the one that's doing it. But you're doing something. You're striving for holiness. 
and you're striving to study the word of God. Well, through the Spirit's work in believers, Paul's asking here that God would give us that Spirit so we could, we could grow and that we would have a, a desire for it and we would have growth in the Christian life. It's not about sitting back and waiting for Jesus to come back. It's not. It's about knowing God more. It's the knowledge of Him. Are you growing in the knowledge of God? Have you been studying? Have you been coming and absorbing the message? Have you been chewing on it? Thinking about it? Home groups are great, by the way. If you're not in a home group, you should go because we talk about the message and we chew on it and we talk about it and apply it in our lives. You should be doing that in your life. You should be applying the scriptures. God has given you His Spirit for that purpose. And I want to pray now that our church would want a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we would pray the same prayer for ourselves and for others. Paul's not just praying for himself. He's praying for others. We ought to do the same. So let's go before God and do that. Lord, you have sealed us with your spirit if we're in Christ. We, we believe that truth. We know that truth. We're, we're eternally secure. And yet we stumble. We we fall. We walk away at times. We, we don't want to hear truth. We don't want to live it out. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Let him give to us your wisdom. And let him show us in your revelation what we should believe, how we should live. Help us, O oh God, to live a life holy before you. Help us, God, to be pleasing in your sight. Help us to not be lazy in the Christian life, but to be constantly seeking your will, asking you for wisdom, asking you to show us the truths in Scripture. You're a gracious God. You're a merciful God. And we know as your people, you will answer us through Christ Jesus. We're only asking something that's in Scripture already. We pray we pray that you would indeed give us this as we grow to be mature in the faith. Let us be complete in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.